Today we're in Ephesians chapter 5, and uh, as we often do, I want to just go ahead and read this whole section together before we even start. Um, so Ephesians chapter 5, we'll give you a moment to get there. The, the message this morning is called Living in the Light, and I think that this message is so timely, so appropriate um, for any season of the life of a Christian. Before we read this morning, I'll just say this. There is not one thing this morning that we will go over in the text that you can't glean from, that I can't glean from. Um, these principles are for someone who does not know Jesus this morning and would like to know Jesus before we leave here to the person who's been walking with Jesus for 30, 40 years. There is something to grow and to glean from in this text. So Ephesians chapter 5, let's look at verse 1. I'm reading from the ESV this morning. It says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Verse 5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral uh, or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were in darkness, but now you are in the light, the light of the Lord. Walk as children of light. It says, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Verse 10, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed in the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Verse 15, look carefully then now how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand that what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and in hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks for everything that God the Father has done in the name of Jesus our Lord, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. There's a lot in there, and we're going to go over all of it. You can be seated if you're standing. Thank you. Um, you know, years ago, I was in, uh, I think I was a, a sophomore in high school, and I was with one of my really good friends at the time, and he lives up, he used to live with his family up in a place by Lake Matthews near Gavlin Hills, and we were doing what high schoolers do, and we were driving to the liquor store at like one in the morning to get powdered donuts, you know those donuts? Uh, always a bad idea. You eat them, and you feel like you ate concrete, and it's just slowly mixing in your stomach. You know, is anybody, can anybody relate to this? Yeah? You, what, you always eat more than you want to, and then you like turn the bag over, and you see that the serving size is like two donuts, and you're like, who eats two donuts? But you ate 10, and so now you're done with your calories for the day. But I was a sophomore in high school, so I wasn't thinking about any of this. So we drive, and we get our powdered donuts and our chocolate milk or whatever horrible things we got. <laughs> and so on the way back 
to his property. They had a couple acres up there. There's no streetlights where we are, right? So it's, it's just a dark road. And we're in, uh, this is my friend Stephen, and at that time we were in his old Ford Ranger. This thing was like, Stephen had done far too many donuts in this. All the gears were grinding. Um, it had like 380,000 miles on it. You know, it's just like on its way out, but it's still kicking. And uh, we get close to his house, and I, I look at him, and I had this, this grand revelation. I said, Stephen, I bet you can't make it home without the headlights on. And, and Stephen, being another high school boy, said, you're on. So we flipped the headlights off. Now, has anybody ever experienced this before? You're driving somewhere, and you don't really realize how dark it is. Uh, one of the things I notice all the time is, like, cars on the freeway, and they don't have their headlights on. And I'm always like, how do you not know that your headlights are not on. Like, you would think that that would be, like, really obvious. But some people are driving around, their headlights aren't on. And I'm always the guy that, that flashes my brights, like, hey, your headlights aren't on, you know? And uh, there's always somebody in the car with me that's like, just leave it be. You know, I'm like, no, somebody needs to tell that guy, his headlights aren't on, you know? Um, so anyways, we're driving, and we're getting close, and it's like the last, like, quarter mile, right, that I'm like, I give Stephen this challenge, <laughs> This very wise challenge, right? And so we get like to this turn, and right about there, he turns the headlights off, and Stephen like executes the turn, and you know he starts to straighten the wheel, and I and I'm like, dude, I, wow, well done, you know, I got like a powdered donut in one hand, chocolate milk, no cap, the other, and I'm like, dude, dude that was really good. And he's like, dude, I think I did it, dude. And he turns the headlights on, we're like, ah, you know, there's a fire hydrant, stop sign, somebody's fence, a dog, a cat. And Stephen's going right at him. We're like 35 miles per hour, right? Not even close. <laughs> he like totally undershot the turn. So he's driving and he turns. If we'd hit that fire hydrant, I can only imagine the things that would have happened, the trouble that we would have been in. So Stephen swerves. We almost flipped the car and we got back on the road and we decided we would never do that again. I had powdered donut all over my pants. You know, the powder that collects at the bottom of the bag, it was all over me. Chocolate milk on the dash. It was a disaster. And the reason I tell that story is because Many of us, before we knew Christ, lived our life like that, where we would have these moments where we might have a glimmer of hope, a glimpse of light, some sort of clarity, and then darkness. Or for some of us, before we knew Jesus, or maybe some of you in this room this morning, you're living your life in darkness. And it's this analogy that Paul gives us in chapter 5 of Ephesians that those who don't know Christ are in darkness. Now, this is a picture or a symbol of what it is to be separated from the Lord, which is ultimately to not be a Christian, to not be a Christ follower, to not be in communion with God in relationship with Jesus is to be in darkness. And when you are out on a dark road, like that story I just told you, and you have nothing illuminating the path before you, it is nearly impossible, I would argue impossible, to correctly navigate the roads ahead of you. Would you agree? Come on, church. I need you this morning, all right? Okay? So, it's all right to talk in church. You can do it. I won't get mad. Um, and so there's this idea in the text this morning that if we want to be Christ followers, first and foremost, we have to be in the light of Christ. And he is our light. He is what illuminates the path before us. 
And you and I both know that if we have come from a lifestyle where we tried to do it on our own, we found very quickly that there was a lot of bumps and bruises and car accidents along the way because there was nothing illuminating what was before us. We were completely in the dark. There is no way to live a life pleasing to God without Him first being the light that illuminates the path before us. In the scripture, there is this figurative use of the word light that Paul uses here, and it has two aspects to the word, the intellectual and the moral. The intellectual aspect represents truth. So when you come into a right relationship with Jesus, what is the thing that you discover most? You discover real truth. You discover that Jesus is truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So when you come out of a lifestyle where you have not been following Jesus, and you come into a right relationship with God through his son Jesus, which is God manifested in flesh, relating to you and me, bearing burdens that we bore, facing temptations but conquering the temptations that we face in this life, you find real truth. When you open this up and study it, you find real truth. The other aspect is the moral aspect. And in this analogy, we have the idea of holiness. It is to be holy, to be set apart for the purposes of Christ. So to live in the light, simply put, is to live in truth and in holiness. To know who God is and to be set apart for his purposes. That is what it is to live a life in the light of Christ. Now, an important question to ask this morning is, well, then what is the opposite of a life in Christ? Well, quite quickly we can draw the conclusion that if to live with Christ is to find truth, to not know Christ is to be living a lie or to be in falsehood, to be deceived. And obviously the opposite of holiness is depravity or separation, evil. And so a life without Christ that has not been illuminated by the truth of his word, by who he is, by who he's shown himself, proven himself to be, lacks truth, it lacks conviction, there is a lack of purpose, direction. And for many of us, we know that when we came from a lifestyle that was without Christ, and then we started walking with Christ, all of a sudden, all of the questions that had been stirring in your soul, no, they're not all answered immediately, right? We all are still seeking and, and striving to know the truth of God's word. But there's so much clarity that comes when we get into a right relationship with Jesus Christ. And so verse 1 says, therefore be imitators of God as what? What does he say? Beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So therefore, obviously we know, refers back to chapter 4. And you can really look at verse 32. What does Paul say? He says in chapter 4, 32, he says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God has forgiven you. <clears throat> that is a key part of this text. See, to live a life the way that Jesus has called us to live means that we first have a basis and an understanding of what Christ has done for us. If I have a calling on my life to live as Jesus lived, 
That means that I have a calling on my life to love as Jesus loved. And I can't love the way that Jesus calls me to love, the way that Jesus exemplified love in his ministry on earth and in dying on the cross for our sins. I cannot even come close to exemplifying that in my own life if I don't first understand that I was loved when I was still dead in my sin. Before I began to follow Christ, Jesus loved me the same. His love for me was not swayed by my disobedience. Now, when I came into a right relationship with him, now he could really work in my life, and he could move and use me to further his kingdom. I wasn't living in disobedience, in rebellion to God, because the illumination of his light changed who I am, changed who you are if you follow Jesus this morning. And so verse 1 gives us this idea of imitating God. That's really the call on the Christian life, to be imitators of Christ, to live as Christ lived, to love as he loved, to serve as he served. Amen? And it it gives this idea in verse 1 as beloved children, that we would walk in love as Christ loved and gave himself for us. And this, in doing so, is an offering. It's a fragrant aroma to God. It pleases him. You could say, it's pleasing to God when his children walk in the fruits of the Spirit. It pleases our Heavenly Father. God is infinitely tenderhearted. As we looked back at verse 32 from chapter 4, it says that he's tenderhearted, forgiving, he's loving. God is infinite in all his attributes. Have you ever thought about that before? He's infinite in all his attributes. He is infinitely just, infinitely loving, infinitely perfect. It never, he never ceases to be any of those things. And I can't explain that to you. I don't understand that tension in Scripture where God is infinitely loving and forgiving, and he's also infinitely just. And somewhere they meet in his perfect godliness, they meet and they collide and they have a perfect harmony and unity. And I can't explain that. But I know that it's true. That God is infinite in all of his attributes, which means his love for you is beyond what you can measure, you can know. His desire to lead you this morning and guide you and bless you is beyond what you can know. So being like Christ means what? It means knowing Christ. Uh, You think of a child looking to their father. We know that science and studies have proven, history has proven that A child imitates the actions of its parents. I heard a story, and you've probably heard it before, that there was a child in the booster seat in the back seat, and mom was driving to the grocery store, and the child says, Mom, I have a question. And mom says, What? And she says, Why are all the idiots only out when dad is driving? (laughs) Children know things. They see things. They imitate us. And by the way, there is some adult content in today's message, if you have little ones in here. Just as a, uh, to let you know, we have childcare happening, so um, there's a few things we're going to touch on today. So there's this idea that children imitate their father. So if we are children of Jesus Christ, as it says, we're children of God in the scripture. If we are children and we have a call on our life to imitate our heavenly father, how well do you think we do this? I don't, I don't know how well I really do at it most of the time, to be quite honest. 
I look at my life and I look at these scriptures and I think, man, I need to, I need to see Christ more. I pray that that would be our heart. None of us are above this this morning. Each one of us has areas in our life this morning where we could look at it and say, man, I could better imitate Jesus in this area of my life. Do you believe that this morning? Because if we believe that together, then God can do great things. I really do think that. I believe that. So there's this idea that it's an offering, a fragrant offering to the Lord. It's also an act of worship. To imitate God is an act of worship. To follow his commands is an act of worship. It says in John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, what does he say? Keep my, come on church, I know you know it. If you love me, keep my commandments. If a child has respect, if I respect my earthly father, I will do what I can to follow the guidelines, the rules that he set before me. If I don't respect my father, then I'm not going to even be concerned with the guidelines, the rules that he set before me. But out of respect and love for my earthly father, I desire to follow the things that he's laid before me. You know, I am now... On my own, very much so, for the last, my wife and I are about to be married three years. It's very exciting, and, you know, we've been on our own for a while. But there was a season of my life where my father was really who I looked to, and I, I don't take that for granted, that my father was around. And I can tell you that my father was around because his father was not around. And so I know the privilege that I had to be able to, to grow up with a dad who was in the, the picture, who laid biblical principles before me and said, son, we still have conversations. My dad pulled me aside just less than a year ago, and there was something that I said, and he said, I've noticed this thing in you, and I can tell you, Shane, I love you and I care for you, and this is something that my father said to me that I'll never forget. He said, I tell you this because I think that this doesn't fare well for your character. I know that my father, if he has something to say to me, it comes from a place of desiring to see me bettered, to see me growing. And for you in this room, some of you have relationships with your earthly father, and they're fantastic. They're in the picture. They, they, you've had a good relationship. Some of you, on the other hand, your relationship with your earthly father was, was not good. <clears throat> it was difficult. Maybe they just weren't there. Can I, can I remind you this morning that that does not represent who Jesus is? As tarnished or as tainted as your relationship with your earthly father may have been, that is not who God is. God is faithful. The scripture says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It says that when you were being formed in your mother's womb, he knew you. He cared for you. He was preparing a way for you. And some of us, the idea of a father in Scripture is a touchy subject because we have so much tied to our earthly relationships with our earthly fathers. But our heavenly father in God is, is perfect. He never fails us. And so we know that if we love God, we will keep his commandments. We will imitate him. Verse 3 says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish or you could say silly talk 
nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. It is imperative that we read this this morning and know that this letter in Ephesians, Paul is writing to a group of Christians. He's not writing to a bunch of non-believers. He's writing to people like you and like me who are seeking to follow after Jesus, seeking to know the things of God. And Paul says, hey, no sexual immorality should even be named among you. And we know that in the latter half of this chapter, Paul is going to segue all of these principles, so hang tight for next week, into marriage and the marriage relationship, what a biblical marriage relationship ought to look like. But these are the foundational principles that we have to have before we can navigate our marriages, before we can navigate any earthly relationships and do them well and live in them the way that Christ has called us to live, we have to understand that these are the foundational principles of a Christian life, of a life that has been transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. If we don't have this basis to build on, then all other relationships in our life will struggle and suffer. Do you believe that? We have to have these principles understood. I didn't say perfected, because that is not achievable. (laughs) Amen? I'm glad that they're not achievable. It makes me feel at least a little bit better. But it also means that I should be striving to be an imitator of Jesus, to not settle. And so he says, don't let sexual immorality or impurity or covetousness even be named among you. And what does he say among saints? Now, how many of you grew up in the Catholic Church? Okay, so when you see the word saint, your mind automatically goes to someone who has been recognized by the Catholic Church They had a miracle in their life that can be attested to, and they were set aside, they were canonized, and they they were set apart, and this was a saint. But that is not what Paul is saying. A saint, according to Scripture, refers to someone who is holy because Jesus Christ has made them holy. You don't have to have performed a miracle or be recognized by the Catholic Church to be a saint. If you know Jesus this morning, the Bible assures us that you are a saint. I remember <laughs> my dad has told this story before. They were at a men's study uh, at one point during, uh, I think it was like a Thursday morning study, and there was a guy who had, you know, had a Catholic background, and I think they were going over this text, and my dad was teaching this idea that, well, yeah, you know, you guys are saints if you know Jesus, and the guy, I think he was an old Italian guy. I hope he was. It just makes it way better. Uh, so he, he looked around the table, and he kind of paused, and he said, There's one thing I know. Ain't none of you saints. (laughs) Right? And I understand where he's coming from because it's understandable. You're looking around and you know Bob and Jeff and whatever, and you were golfing with him on Monday and you heard what he said when he blew the putt, and you're thinking, this guy's not a saint. But the scripture says that, yeah, Bob is a saint if he knows Jesus because his sins have been covered by the blood of Jesus. He's been made holy, not by anything that he could have done, but because of what Christ has done. You're a saint this morning if you're in a right relationship with Jesus. But that's a responsibility that comes with that title. So Paul says, if you are a saint, then these things shouldn't even be named among you. 
And we know in other letters to churches throughout the New Testament, Paul addresses these crazy sins and situations that are happening in churches. And there's, there's brothers sleeping with sisters, and Paul's like, what are you doing? You guys are saints of Jesus Christ. This behavior shouldn't even be named among you. What are you doing? And I think that the call from Paul here to the church in Ephesus is, you guys are saints. Don't even let these things be named among you. We often say, let us be above reproach. And that term gets thrown out a lot in our Christian lingo. But to be above reproach means that you are living a life above that thing. So if someone came to you and said, I accuse you of sexual immorality, you are living a life where the people who know you closest, your wife, your, your spouse, can look at you and say, I know them. I know the fruit in their life, and I know that they're above that thing. And that's the idea that Paul is conveying to the Christian church is let's be above these things. Let them not even be named among us. And I would pray that in living truth in 2020, that we would be able to say that these things are not even being named among us. That sexual immorality and addiction that is being hidden behind the scenes would be brought to light because he says in this chapter that the things that are brought to light can then begin to be healed and changed. But it is not until the light of Christ illuminates that thing in our life that we can see real change happen. So don't even let these things be named among you. He talks about covetousness. Now, I like power tools. So I go to Home Depot and I covet every tool as I walk down the aisle. But I feel like they don't belong to anyone personally, so it's justified. <laughs> no, I have too many tools. We, my wife tells me all the time, you, do you need that? that? Every time I'm at Home Depot, that's the first question my wife asks me. Do you really need it? No, I don't really need it. I don't really need any of this. They built the pyramids without any of this. But I want it. It's not a question of necessity. So don't covet. Don't have idols in your life. Some of you, it's your vintage car. I heard it said that... uh, Many people on Sundays, instead of being at church, are outside waxing their God. For some of us, it's video games. We love to game. Live to game. I am, not, I am so bad at video games. It is unbelievable how bad I am. My brother has this game on this thing. I don't even know what it's called, see? And he, it's like you play soccer with cars. It's called Rocket League. I played for 20 minutes, and I didn't touch the ball once. I was like, what's going on? Every time my car would get close, you like play. You're a car and you play soccer. I couldn't even touch the ball. I'm so bad. So I've been blessed that I can avoid video games altogether because I'm so bad at them. I just get frustrated. I'm very competitive. So it's just terrible recipe for me. I just can't do it. Mario Kart is the only game I kind of can play. I think I'm halfway good at it. And then like people come over who are gamers and I'm like, wow, I'm terrible. I'm in 12th place. I get that assist like every five seconds and I'm still in 12th place. I'm being lapped. It's horrible. So he says, don't be an idolater. Don't have idols in your life. In layman's terms, don't put anything before God. God comes first. You would think that this would be a really basic principle, being that Jesus gives it to us in the Ten Commandments. The Lord gave it to us as the first commandment. He says, love the Lord God with all your heart and put no other gods before him. 
But we love, our, our temptation within us in our humanity is to put anything and everything before Jesus. And I can tell you with assurance, church, that for the rest of your life, it will be a battle until you are in heaven. Things are going to fight for the first place in your life. Everything but Jesus will fight for the top spot on the totem pole, if you will. But Jesus is the rightful heir. He is the one who's to be on the throne of our hearts. And everything in our life will seek to dethrone that that is not from him. It doesn't mean that we can't have cool cars and tools and play video games and whatever other illustrations I gave. It just means that those things always come in second to the Lord. And hopefully to your family and, you know, those things too. That would be good if your car is not more important than your wife, men. Okay? And he says in verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Just a light little footnote from Paul there. God does not justify those who he does not sanctify. We have to be sanctified to be justified. Meaning that until I am in right relationship, washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, I can't be justified before the Father. And that means that these things that Paul is calling out in our life as Christians, we need to correct them and seek to please the Lord in the way that we live. But we cannot do it perfectly. And that's why we're saved by grace. Thank Jesus that we are saved by grace through faith. Because as these standards and these ideas are laid out, it's pretty intimidating. Would you agree? To keep all these things, that's why we need a Savior. If there's one thing that we can glean from this chapter, it's that, man, we need more of Jesus. Because I can't do this on my own. But there's this idea that if there's habitual sin with no repentance, no desire for true change and transformation then the question must be asked this morning, do you know Christ? Are you seeking to be an imitator of Christ? Or are you okay with the sin that's in your life? And that hurts to think about. I'm right here with you. There are things in our life that we get way too comfortable with. Way too okay. Well, And I hear this all the time. Well, that's just who I am. Then Change! Because that's what Jesus said. Jesus didn't walk around and look at people and say, ah, I know you're struggling, so you know what? I know it's just kind of how you are. We'll leave it alone, okay? No! He said, what, it, what happened when the, when the Pharisees set up the thing, the religious leaders set up this thing, they catch this woman in adultery, they bring her before Jesus, Jesus justifies her, she says, woman, where are your accusers? Right, Because Jesus looks at the crowd who's there to stone her to death. And Jesus says, the first one who throws the stone can be the one who's without sin. And it says that one by one, her accusers walked away. But Jesus didn't say, okay, so next time you're caught in adultery, just come find me and we'll do this again. No! Jesus said, you have been justified. Woman, where are your accusers? Neither do I condemn you, but sin no more. He didn't justify the sin. He justified the sinner because he loves the sinner, but he hates your sin because he knows what your sin does to you. Church family, if we don't stop and think about what our sin ultimately does to us, then we won't understand why we need to stop sinning 
Jesus didn't ask us to stop sinning and call us to a life of holiness so that we could not have fun anymore. Just as a good earthly father gives boundaries to his children, they're not to take away the child's joy. Some of you fathers probably relish in moments of that, I'm sure. But you give these guidelines not to steal your children's joy, but to protect them from the things you know can happen if they go beyond these guidelines. It's the classic example. You can tell a two-year-old all day, don't touch the stove, it's hot. Don't touch the stove, it's hot. You're not telling them that to rob them of joy. You're trying to rob them from pain, keep them from pain. But sometimes we have to touch the stove. And then we find out, ah, dad was right again. And this is true of our heavenly father. How many of us have found ourselves in a situation in sin where we think, man, I knew that I shouldn't have done this. And I did it anyway. The Lord was right. Can I let you in on a secret? He's never wrong. So just listen to him. I know it's easier said than done. I'm with you. This hurts me too. Sin is serious. So serious that God sent his son to die to take care of it. In the book of Hebrews, there's this overarching theme that if there was another way that that our sin could have been atoned for, if there was another way that we could have been justified before God, then even Jesus in the garden before his death said, Lord, if there is another way, please let's do that. But your will be done. God does not tolerate sin because he cannot be in sin. It's against his nature. It's against who he is. So he takes sin seriously, so much so that his son had to die to take care of our sin. But we have been justified. Can I speak this to you this morning? It is dangerous to give assurance of salvation to a person who has no biblical grounds for such assurance. We have people in our life this morning, we all probably have at least one person who we see their life and we think, do they know Jesus? But then we see them and we're like, oh, yeah, yeah, Christian buddies, yep. But actually, Paul says that if you see this type of behavior in someone's life, you ought to speak the truth to them in love. If you don't have people in your life who challenge you to grow closer to Jesus, you need to get new people. If you are surrounded by people who just butter you up and tell you that everything you're doing is okay and it's all great and dandy and they don't challenge you, that's not good. Because that means that you're going to be just fine staying where you are because everybody around you thinks it's great. We need to be surrounded by people in our life, Christians in our life, who will look at us and say, I love you, you got to work on this. And I've had people in my life, I have people in my life who do that for me. And it, I believe it takes a relationship with somebody. And that's why surrounding yourself with people in your life who you love, who you can trust when they come to you and they say, hey, I love you. I think you should work on this. They know, you know that their heart is for you, not against you. We need people like that in our life. We need to speak the truth in love. Living a holy life. 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16 in the NLT reads like this. It says, So you must live as God's obedient children and don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then, but now you must be holy in everything you do just as God who you chose to follow is holy. 
The scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. It's a, it's a high calling to live a life of holiness, and it's not easy. Titus 2, 11 through 15 says, For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. This is Titus 2, 11. And we are, instru- we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures, and we should, live, we should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God, while we look forward to hope in Jesus Christ on that wonderful day when our glory, the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ will be revealed. He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us and to make us his very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds. Do people look at your life this morning and say, that guy is committed, that woman is committed to doing good deeds, to doing the things of Jesus? Or do most people at your place of work or where you run in your social circles not even really know if you're a Christian or not? There's a call that we would be set apart. Our lives can't be marked by the same things that the world lives their life by. Verse 6, chapter 5 of Ephesians, it says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon sons of disobedience. How many of you have been in this situation? You're around some non-believing people, maybe some friends or family, and you slip up. Okay, so let's say you use profanity. This is just a hypothetical here, right? So you're around family, you say, you say something you know you shouldn't say. The Lord, Holy Spirit's like, conviction, right? Anybody? Anybody ever been convicted before? Cool. If you're not raising your hand, I'm very concerned. Um, <clears throat> and so you look at maybe a non-believing person in your family, and you're like, you know, I'm really sorry that I said that. You know? And they're like, it's fine. You can say it more often, you know? Loosen up, man. Paul says, don't listen to him. No, 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 no. He says, let no one deceive you with empty words. Don't be fooled or sucked into this ideology that's outside of Christ. And that example, you could apply to your own life in a million different ways. We've probably all been in those situations before. Maybe it's at work. Okay, we ready for this? You're around the water cooler, and here comes John, and he's dirty joke John. Just made that up. I don't know any dirty joke Johns, but they're always trouble. And he shows up. You're just trying to eat your turkey sandwich that your loving, wonderful wife packed you. And here comes dirty joke John with the dirty joke of the day. And this is an opportunity for you, Christian. And I feel like a lot of times the Holy Spirit's like, so are you going to laugh at that or are you going to walk away? Are you going to laugh at it? Oh, okay, you're going to laugh at it. Shame on you. I told you better. Right? Because the temptation is there. And Dirty Joke John might be funny, but Dirty Joke John's a dirty, rotten sinner. And when you laugh at his jokes, you enable Dirty Joke John. So don't laugh. And it is amazing. I was just at a coffee shop the other day. Pull in. I got a nice forerunner. I put a lot of love and TLC into it, man. Time, love, and care. It's, it's pretty sweet. It's an old, she's an old girl, though. She's, you know, 22 years old now. But I pulled up, and you know, I got some cool lights on the front, and this guy says, wow, that's a beep, 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 nice car. I was like, thanks, man. You know, it doesn't bother me. I, uh, this guy doesn't have the same worldview as me. I'm not going to judge him because he used profanity, but I'm not going to say that. So I was like, yeah, thanks, man. You know, he's more talking cars, and 
Like, how often do you change the oil? We're talking. It was actually a really great conversation, but <laughs> I always love when this happens. So he says, you know, you're a nice young man. What do you do for a living? You know, and I was like, oh, I'm actually a pastor at a church. And he's like, oh, geez, excuse my language. <laughs> what? You're forgiven. You can kiss my ring, right? No. I, but it is so funny how when you just mention, I didn't even mention Jesus. I just said I'm a pastor, and all of a sudden the guy's full of guilt because he knows he's got a filthy mouth. Oh, geez, excuse my language. And then he followed it up. Oh, forgive me. He said, I'm on the board at the Catholic Church. What? <laughs> Come on, man. So you're a brother in the Lord then. So I, now I'm going to tell you. What are you doing? Or I love this one. Oh, yeah, I go to church. Right on, man. Where do you go to church? Oh, what's it called? <laughs> That's all right. Who's the pastor there? Oh, what's his name? Ah. I'm like, you go to church? See, because this is the thing. We've seen studies just recently that the American family attends church one out of every five Sundays because we're playing soccer and we're playing baseball and we're going to whatever. We're waxing the car. We need to be in the, the fellowship of the body. The scripture makes this clear. If you want to grow in these convictions and know Jesus more, you have to spend time with him. You can't imitate somebody that you don't know. If you want to truly imitate God, you have to know God. It's not rocket science. But for some reason, we miss it so often. Paul writes this letter to Ephesus in about A.D. 61. Less than two years later, Paul pins 1 Timothy. Writing to Timothy, Timothy's probably, he's probably younger than me. He's an up-and-coming leader in the church. Paul gives him all these ideas. And Paul writes 2 Timothy right before he's, in, he's captured again. And he writes 2 Timothy in prison right before he's killed by Nero. But 1 Timothy... Less than two years after Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians, he says this to Timothy oh, in 1 Timothy. He says, stay there in Ephesus so you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines. It's not even been two years, and Paul's like, can you just talk to the Ephesians again? Because I already told them, but uh, Timothy, I need you to... You can just like sense the father relationship that Paul has over the church, that he cares for the church, he loves the church. And he's writing to Timothy not even two years later, and he's saying, hey, hey, Timmy... Can you remind them what I said about not teaching false doctrines and teaching things that aren't Jesus? Because they're doing it again. Paul's receiving word that the church is teaching false doctrines again. In fact, the Gnostics of the day at this time in history taught that you could do whatever you wanted with your body because it didn't affect your soul. Wouldn't that be nice if that was true? No, that's an absolute lie from Satan himself. The Gnostics were teaching that you could sleep with whoever you wanted to sleep with because your soul is separate from your body. No. That is not what the Bible teaches. And Paul, is, Paul knows that these teachings are going around in the church and he's saying, tell them to stop because that's not the gospel. There was heresy in the Ephesian church and Paul calls it out. And he tells Timothy, you need to stop. You need to tell these guys to stop teaching this false doctrine. We have to know what the Bible says and who Jesus is to be able to properly defend them. If you know somebody, then you know their character. So I have a brother named James. If somebody comes up to me and says, yeah, gee, I love your brother James. 
And I say, oh, thanks, man. Yeah, he's a great guy, you know. And they're like, yeah, you know, it's crazy. He was telling me that, uh, you know, he was uh, going to Azusa Pacific, and, you know, it's crazy how he's got a full beard now. And, you know, but it's weird. He's only 5'2". And he starts describing all these characteristics, and I'm like, that's not my brother, though. My brother has no beard. He's a little taller than me, and he goes to a different school. Wait, who are you talking about? See, the thing is, I know James. So if somebody starts telling me that they also know James, but then describes weird things about James, I'm going to be like, well, no, that's not right. You should be able to do that with Jesus. You should know Jesus so well that when someone comes in and says, yeah, hey, I know Jesus too, and they start saying things about Jesus that aren't true, that you would quickly be able to say as a Christ follower, no, that's not the Jesus that I know. That's not the Jesus that I see here. So who do you know? I think you're worshiping a false god. See, that's the importance of knowing Jesus, because if I don't know him, I can't I can't pick out when somebody is teaching a false thing about him. We need to know Jesus more. we got to keep moving. Verse 7. All right, we're going to get a chunk of this done. Therefore, do not become partners with them. So, again, referring (laughs) to the world, to false teachers. This is so key for us this morning. Verse 8. For at one time you were in darkness. So the language here Paul uses implies that you are no longer in darkness. Now the headlights are on, right? We're cruising, we can see. You were in darkness, but you are no longer in darkness. That is so important for us to understand this morning. That means that the old man, the old woman, is gone. You don't have to play games with that anymore. The old is gone. You've been justified, forgiven. So live in the new life that Christ has given you. But now you are in the light of the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and it is right and true. Verse 10, and try to discern what is pleasing to God. Again, this idea, if we want to please God and know what is pleasing to him, we have to know him. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Like I was just saying, there's this idea that Paul says, when you see something that's not right, Call it out for what it is, in love. There's a way that you can speak truth to somebody and do it in love to bring fruit into their life. Verse 12, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. When is the last time that in the midst of trying to make a decision, we stopped and we said, will this please God? And you want to get real this morning? We had a question at 633. And somebody said, why do we not talk about gluttony as a church? And I thought, you know what? We should talk about it more. It's a sin that the Bible talks about. So here's a question for you, and this sounds almost like a joke, but I'm not even kidding. When's the last time that before you indulged yourself in further eating and getting another plate of food, you thought, is this good for me? Would this be pleasing to God, or am I borderlining on gluttony? I'm just asking the question. I love to eat, okay? So that one is hard for me to say. I'm just telling you. And as I've gotten into my, like, now later 20s, things are slowing down, and you're like, wow, I ate two burritos, and I look like I ate two burritos. When I was in high school, I could eat four burritos, and I looked like I ate zero. I couldn't gain weight, save my life. Now my wife cooks, I go get food, and I'm like, wow, it's, there it is. It's right there. But gluttony is a sin that the Bible talks about. So here's a really day-to-day example that we can put into practice in our lives as Christians. 
do I really need to eat more food? Or am I probably good? Because it's actually a sin, and we don't really talk about it that much. In fact, if you're around a bunch of guys, usually it's like, yeah, you're wussing down, man. Eat another one. What's wrong with you, boy? And the guy's like about on the verge of throwing up. He's eaten so much food. And we encourage it. But the Bible actually says that's a sin. Don't eat more than you need to eat. Jesus loves to eat food. My favorite verse in the Bible is, come and lead it, let us eat breakfast. Jesus said that. Jesus had his priorities right there, man. Like, let's go eat. There's nothing wrong with enjoying food. It's a gift from God. But there's something there to that. Do we make a habit of overeating? The Bible actually says that that's a sin. When we are making decisions, do we really seek, stop, and say, would this be pleasing to the Lord? I hope that we do. Maybe we need to make it more of a practice in our life. Now, I'm not saying that <laughs> when everything you do, stop and pray, the clerk's like, cash your card. And you're like, one moment. No, no, no. That's not what I'm saying, okay? <laughs> what I'm saying is, when things of importance come into your life, put them before the Lord. Look at Scripture and say, would this be pleasing to the Lord? And oftentimes, there's no, like, right or wrong in decisions that we're making. There's obviously black and white issues as well. But there are certain times in our life where maybe we're just making a decision about a move or buying a house and... We seek the Lord for wisdom, but I don't necessarily think God's always going to give us, yes! I think sometimes he wants us to move forward in faith, too. Are you guys with me? All right, I'm good. I'm glad. <clears throat> Verse 11. He says, take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Let's jump to Verse 13. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is a reference, Paul's referencing uh, Isaiah 60, 1 and 2. He's paraphrasing it a little bit, but that's what that reference is to. Ephesians 5, 13, when sin is exposed, change can happen. Some of us are dealing with sins in our life right now, and nobody knows about them. Nobody knows that we're dealing with that thing. Can I encourage you this morning to get accountability in your life? Because when you confess something before the Lord and before people who you can trust, change can happen. Because when God's light illuminates the darkest parts of our life, change and transformation takes place. But some of us have these sins in our life and we keep them in the dark. Because let's be honest, it's a lot easier to keep it in the dark than to have to swallow our pride and say, I need help with this. And so that is so important for us this morning, to know that sin, when it is exposed, it loses its power. You know, many of us growing up, maybe some of us still, it's fine, you don't have to raise your hand, you're scared of the dark, right? But isn't it amazing when you flip on the lights, that thing you were terrified of, how many have had this experience before? You forgot that you hung your suit on the door frame the night before. Wake up in the middle of the night, and you're like, somebody's in the house! You're grabbing the gun out of the nightstand. All right! You flip on the lights. Your wife's like, what are you doing? It's your suit. And you're like, yes, I knew that. This was a drill. Right? All, that, all of a sudden, nobody else in the room has had this experience. Just me? No, but you guys know what I mean. Like you have a hat hanging over a coat and then you flip the lights off and it looks like a person in your room and you wake up in the middle of the night. I'm seeing some heads, okay? And you're like, wow, it's terrifying. Then you flip on the lights and you're like, oh, it's my favorite hat and my favorite jacket. 
There is something that happens when the darkest parts of our life, the things that are terrifying to us, the things that keep us at bay, the things that hold us back from all that God has for us, when they are illuminated with his light, all of a sudden they become a lot less intimidating because God already has the victory. So if you have sin in your life and you need to confess it and you need healing from it, don't wait another day. Verse 15, look carefully at how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of your time. This reminds me of James 4.14. He says, yet do you not know what, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. Your life, what is your life? For it is a mist that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. He says, because the days are evil. Verse uh, 17, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine, for this is debauchery, to be, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, submitting to one another in reverence for Christ. Now, as we read this, this is our last section for this morning, does anybody else feel like that don't get drunk with wine is kind of in a random spot? Okay, so the first time I read this, I was like, well, that's weird. I mean, yes, amen, don't get drunk with wine, but why right there, Paul? That's kind of out of place. I don't think it's a coincidence that right before Paul says, be filled with the Spirit, he says, don't get drunk with wine. Some of us this morning, alcohol is a source of problems for us in our life. Some of us have had problems with alcohol in the past. This is not a suggestion from Paul. This is a command. He says, do not get drunk with wine or beer or rum or liquor or tequila or margaritas, whatever it is. Don't get drunk. Does he say don't drink? No. Now, this has been a heated debate that we could spend another hour on in the church since the beginning of time. And we don't have time to do that this morning. But here's what I will say to you as people who are seeking to follow after Jesus. Drinking is not a sin. I can say that with confidence this morning. But drinking in excess is 100% a sin. Drinking with a desire to find happiness in that drink or to escape the problems of this life is a sin. This is not a, a gray area in Scripture. In fact, Paul gives us further instruction in the New Testament, and he says that if somebody you are with struggles with drinking alcohol or has an alcohol addiction, don't drink in front of them. Do you have the liberty in Jesus to drink that? Yes. But should you drink it in front of your brother to potentially stumble them? Absolutely not, because then that would be sin. This is a difficult area to navigate. Like I said, we do not have time this morning to get into all the details. But here's the reality. If you are seeking to please God in what you do, then he will give you clarity in these areas. It does not mean that drinking is inherently a sin. No doubt about it. If you, if, I heard John MacArthur say in a commentary the other day, I read it uh, the other day, he said, uh, drinking or not drinking is not an indication of holiness in someone's life. So if you don't like it, you can talk to Mr. MacArthur. Write him a letter. Okay? If somebody says, well, I don't drink, that doesn't make them more holy. And church, please hear me on this because I've seen it cause so much division in the church. I don't mean the living truth necessarily. I just mean the church. Someone says, well, I don't drink at all. 
That is their prerogative. That's their choice. That's between them and the Lord. It's a conviction thing. But if somebody, this is what I see a lot. Well, I, yeah, I, I have a beer occasionally. People are like, oh, geez. MacArthur says the Bible teaches that somebody drinking or not drinking is not an indication of how holy they are. But all of us have different baggage, different situations, and we need to walk, as the Scripture's been telling us all morning, in wisdom and discernment and know what God wants for our life. Amen? So, we could talk about that more, but we don't have time this morning. But the command is clear in our text this morning. Don't get drunk. If you have a problem with drinking, get help. Because the Scripture literally says in the NLT... Don't get drunk with wine, for that will ruin your life. It's pretty straightforward. And some people in this room who I love and care about can attest to that and can say, yes, drinking almost ruined my life. For some of you, you have parents. It ruined their life, drinking in excess. So we need to be walking in wisdom and discernment. It's not a suggestion. MacArthur says this, to be filled with the Spirit involves confession of sin, surrender of will, intellect, body, time, talent, possessions, and desires. It requires the death of selfishness and the slaying of self-will. When we die to self, the Lord fills us with His Spirit. So it's that easy. You guys have a great morning. Right? That was supposed to be a joke. He literally says to be filled with the Spirit involves confession of sin, surrender of will, intellect, body, time, talent, possessions, and desires. It requires the death of selfishness. It's a huge calling, and you can't do it alone. So this morning, as we seek to imitate Christ, to be imitators of Jesus, we have to be filled with the Spirit. Does it mean we're going to execute everything in our life perfectly and without sin? Please give me a confident no. <laughs> right? That is why we need Jesus Christ. But there is a calling on our life to desire and to walk in a way that imitates Christ. Here's a good place to land. John 3.30, many of us know this verse. He says what? He must increase, I must decrease. If I make my desires lower on the priority list and put Christ's desires for me on the high priority list, and he increases and I decrease, then we're seeking to imitate Christ because that is what Jesus exemplified in his life. As I said earlier, even in the garden before Jesus went to the cross, he said, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. We will pick up next week where we left off. But to summarize this morning, what does it mean to live in the light then? Well, it means to live in truth and in holiness, to desire to imitate Christ, Ultimately, the most important thing is love. And we see Paul take this idea into the next section of the scripture where he applies it to our marriage relationships. If we understand, the band can come on out if you guys can hear me. If we understand the love that's been poured out on us this morning, if we understand the redemption that we have had because of what Jesus has done, if we understand where we came from and we don't lose sight of where we came from, God can do so much through our life. Because when that person in your life that you just can't stand and you have so much struggles loving this person, right? We all have that person in our life. 
You're like, oh, I want to love you, but I don't right now. Remember this. He loved us while we were still dead in our sin. And here's what you could say. So go and do the same for others. Love them when they are still dead in their sin. Love the person in your life that is completely contrasted to you when it comes to politics. Some of you are like, nope, impossible. If they don't agree with me 100% on politics, we can't be friends. No, you're wrong. That's not the heart of Jesus. And I can tell you right now, anybody have social media right now and see what's happening in politics and see how crazy things are and how everything's being leveraged and how insane it is? Yeah, it's insane. And I see a lot of hate and not a lot of love. So church this morning, the call on our life is to be imitators of Christ, to walk in his light. Let's let Jesus illuminate the path before us, amen? All right, so as we sing this last song, there's this idea that we would build our life on Christ. Now, I know we're a little over time. I'm sorry. I can blame my father. I'm imitating my father. <laughs> so, I just don't want to miss this because we stopped, but I, I don't want to miss this. Look at chapter 5 real quick because this is about what we're about to do. What does Paul say in 19? He says, address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything that God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ has done, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We have an opportunity to do that right now. Isn't that great? We planned it. We do it every week. We have an opportunity to practice what Paul is telling us in so many ways. But right now, we can sing together. I had uh, Michael Velarde. I love Michael so much. He texted me and he said, he had, I had a song request. He didn't know I wasn't doing the music this week, but I said, yeah, we'll do that song. And he said, I can't really sing, but, you know. And what's funny is when Michael texted me that, I was reading this verse. And I said to Michael, I said, you know what? There's great news for you, man. The Lord really doesn't care about how, vo how your voice sounds. He cares about the posture of your heart. I get that some of you this morning, the singing is not your thing. That's okay. But there is a command in Scripture that we would sing together because there's something that happens when we lift our voices to heaven. There's something that God does when we do that together. Now, some of you, if you mumble words this morning, it's a big step for you. Do it, man. Just do it. Because it is amazing what God can do in the, in the working in your heart when you just start singing to him. Now, I'm biased, but it's in Scripture. Let's worship the, the God that we love, the God that we desire to know more this morning, the God that we desire to imitate this morning. Let's worship him together. Amen? Let's build our life on Jesus. Lord, thank you for everything that you're showing us in your word. Lord, there's so much in this passage, so much that we could glean from and, and be challenged with. And so I just pray that you would continue to work in our lives, God. Continue to be glorified through what uh, you want to do, Lord. Uh, just use this music, use the teaching, use everything in our life, God, to bring you glory. May that be the chief end in our life, to bring you glory, to imitate you, Jesus. So we look to you this morning in your name. Amen. Let's, let's sing together.